1 Samuel chapter 14, verses 47 through 52. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them, and he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malchi Shua. And the names of his two daughters were these. The, names of the firstborn, name of the firstborn was Merab, and the name of the younger, Michael. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahananoam, and the, the daughter of ah, Ahimaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul, and when Saul had saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. Father, as we read your word, I pray, Father, you would speak to us, you would guide us, you would teach us, you would give us an understanding of who you are and who your character is and what your character is so that we might glorify you, praise you, walk away from here in awe and fear of who you are, but a love that is deeper than any of us could imagine, Father, as we understand who you are, and as we strive to then obey you and to live for you as you ask in your name. Amen. Well, good morning. Good morning. It's good to see you all. Supposedly, it's going to get warmer this week. I'm not very happy about that. Just want to let you know. So if you're upset because the warm doesn't come, you can blame me if you think I have that kind of power. But um, again, you read this passage, and we're going to be doing this all the way through Advent. We're going through 1 Samuel. And again, if it all points to Christ, it all points to Christmas, and it all points to Easter. Uh, but you go, what in the world, all these names, all these, why? Why, why, would we, why would we continue to go through this? There is a point to it. It all does point to Christ. And so we have to, we have to figure out what is God trying to say through these passages that seemingly has absolutely nothing to do with Christmas. Who cares about Saul's, the name of Saul's wife's, uh, wife or his daughters or his sons? What's the big deal? Well, last week when we looked at the life of Jonathan, we saw that he was put in danger by a rash oath from his father. Saul required that no soldier eats any, of the Philist, uh, any food until the Philistines were completely and utterly defeated. Jonathan wasn't there when that oath was given, and so when he comes upon some sweet honey, he doesn't hesitate. He takes it, he eats it, he's rejuvenated, his eyes uh, go wide open, he's ready to fight again, but it was out of disobedience to the oath. Even though he didn't know that that oath had happened, he was still under the penalty of death. And all, when all was found out, Saul was willing to take his own son's life in order to fulfill a foolish oath, but it was the soldiers, the people who actually then stood up for Jonathan. They'd have none of it, and they redeemed Jonathan from the penalty of death. To where Saul was willing to give the life of his own son, so was God, but for very different reasons. Where the people had to redeem Jonathan from the foolishness of Saul, Jesus Christ willingly gave his life for the people of God. 
in order to glorify the Father. And today we will see that Saul is commanded to utterly destroy the Amalekites. And, and I'll be honest with you, this brings up some difficult teachings about the character of God. This section does. This first section, though, seems a little out of place. It seems weird. Why would we need to know about all of Saul's military accomplishments and the names of his family members and so on? Well, there is a purpose for it. God doesn't just put something in his word just because it's fun. He puts it in there for a reason, and this section is, is no different. Saul's actions throughout the book of Samuel have been about how he looks to those around him and less about how he looks to God. He defeats this group of people, or he, he subdues this nation, and as the section that I just read says, or he routed them wherever he turned. He does this action. He does that action. He has this family member or that family member or this army commander. He takes all the strong men and the good soldiers and he attaches them to himself. So what's, what lesson is God trying to teach us as his people through this? Well, this section is actually a section that points to how Saul's focus is on his earthly and worldly accomplishments. Now, it may seem a bit harsh to say, well, it's just a, an ex- he's just given information, right? So what's the big deal? In fact, if we go to 2 Samuel chapter 8, there's a very similar section about David when he is king. Here's his victories. In fact, it goes even further and says this is how many soldiers he had and how many chariots he had. So how could we be so harsh of Saul but not so harsh of David? Well, because it's about the focus, There is a phrase used twice in the passage about David that isn't included in this one about Saul. And this is what what it says, quote, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went, end quote. You never hear that in this section about Saul. Where the Lord is with David, the Lord had already left Saul. And in taking the surrounding context of 1 Samuel, we can see that though Saul won victories, he saved Israel. He brought them out of slavery to the nations around them. He did it like every other king of every other nation. He did it without God. Whereas David, even with all his flaws, he did it with God. You want another comparison between Saul and David? Saul doesn't repent. Now we'll get there because it seems like he does. Whereas David always repents of his sin. David is about accomplishing glory for God. Saul's accomplishments were for the glory of himself. And this is evidence in the very next section where Saul obeys the word of the Lord. Well, I should rephrase that. He sort of obeys the word of the Lord. So if you got your Bibles, your Bible app, open them up. We're going to read through the first nine verses of chapter 15. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over this people, Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted that Amalek, what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and destroy, to, uh, devote to destruction all that they have. 
Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And so Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Talim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havalah all as far as Shur, which is the east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, he devoted to destruction. One, one of the weekly chores that my children have is to sweep the kitchen floor. Seems pretty simple, right? Why do we sweep the kitchen floor? We're dirty. It's just, we eat and it's amazing how much food is on the floor when you're done with a meal. Now, what if they sweep everywhere in the kitchen except for right under the table where we eat, the dirtiest part? Have they obeyed me as their father? Thank you. That would be a no. Who said that? We're holding you to that. Your parents are listening, okay? This is where the sort of, that I said, he sort of, Saul sort of obeyed God. This is where that that sort of comes into play. Saul was commanded by God to devote the Amalekites to complete destruction. And this type of command is actually found in Leviticus 27 where it says, no one devoted, excuse me, no one devoted who is to be devoted for destruction from mankind shall be ransomed. You can't buy them back. You can't make a sacrifice for them. He shall utterly be put to death. But Saul devotes the despised and the worthless to destruction, leaving the best, including the Malachite king, to be brought home as spoil of war. Saul swept the kitchen floor, but he refused to sweep under the table, under the cabinets, or even throw away the pile of dirt. He considered his actions as obedience. But Samuel literally hears otherwise. For a sort of, quote-unquote, sort of obedience is actually called something. It's called disobedience. And there are consequences when one disobeys God. So let's read verses 10 through 23. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel and behold, he set up a monument for himself. Did you catch that? Selfishness. It's all about him. And turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, 
What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought back, brought Agog, the king of Amalek, and I've devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. I love that line. What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? If we bring it back to the sweeping thing. So what is this pile of food and dirt that I just stepped in? You obeyed me? I've swept under the table. Well, then what is all this food laying on the floor? Saul's excuse didn't pass the eye or the ear test, literally. The bleeding of the sheep was all the evidence needed to prove his disobedience. And when Saul offered an unlawful sacrifice in chapter 13, the kingdom was removed from his descendants, and the Lord no longer listened to his prayers and requests, but he was still king. He was still seen in God's eyes as the king of Israel, but Saul's rejection of the command of God in dealing with the Amalekites meant God's rejection of Saul as king. For God takes obedience to his commands seriously, especially for those called to lead his people in knowing, understanding, and following these commands. Once again, Saul has an excuse for his disobedience, but it doesn't really help his case. It's the people's fault. It's the people's fault. It's the people's fault. Now let's finish out the chapter. And Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from a being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. 
we're not going to talk about it, but I see a lot of the words of Christ speaking to Israel in his day. It's being torn from you and given to the Gentiles. And so the glory of Israel will not lie uh, or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. And then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. And so Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Now, why did Samuel turn back? Well, I think the next section says that. There's a purpose. He wasn't there to honor Saul. And then Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among you. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Who says the Bible's not grotesque? It is at times. And then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gilgal of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Saul finally admits to his sinful disobedience, confessing that he feared the people and he obeyed their voice, not fearing God and obeying his. And this is an interesting way of putting it because it's also a confession that he didn't fear God. He admits, I'm all about the people and not about God because it was God who made him king. It was God who empowered him to fight the Ammonites. It was God who commanded him to do this or to do that. And yet Saul feared those whom he was king over instead of fearing the one who made him king. And even his repentance doesn't quite seem sincere and true. Sure, he asked for forgiveness of his sin. You go, well, I mean, we got to take it at face value, right? But in the very next breath, he begged Samuel to come with him and honor him before the people. I feared them. Can you come back with me so that they can see me as, as better and honor me? There's no honoring God out of his mouth. We learned this week, my, my kids and I were having a conversation. Uh, uh, um, talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. You can say, I love Jesus, but does your, vo- your, your life follow that? Saul says, I'm sorry. I disobeyed God. I feared the people, and I'm wrong in that. Can you come back and honor me? There just seems to be very little sincerity in that repentance. He was still worried more about the people's opinion of him than God's opinion of him. Again, that's the difference between David and Saul. David's sin was revealed and he fell on his knees and he went before the Lord. He didn't go before the people. There's one clear application of this passage. Fear God, not man. But how do we know in whom we really fear? Well, God gives three difficult teachings to help us evaluate our own lives and our own hearts. And how we respond to these difficult teachings, I think, does 
open our eyes to where, where does our fear really lie? Where does our obedience truly lie? And all three reveal God's character, who he is as God, and are both easy and extremely difficult to apply to our daily lives. So when you hear these, how we react to them reveals where our hearts lie. Do we have a heart of David or do we have a heart of Saul? Do we have a heart of Samuel and Jonathan or do we have a heart of Saul? So the first difficult, I I have to deal with these. One of my biggest pet peeves is teachers, commentaries, Bible notes where you're like, man, this is, what does this actually mean? And they don't talk about it because, you know, it's too hard. I'm not telling you I've got all the answers this morning. My seminary professor would be really upset with me if you heard me say that. But the reality is these are difficult passages for a reason. They've been talked about for thousands of years. And probably, in, at least in my opinion, in my look at my own life, when I hear these, you know what the difficult part of it is? Is getting me to actually through faith, obey these things and understand these things in my own heart because I don't necessarily like them. First difficult teaching. So that, that being said, my hope is that you hear these through faith, you study them yourselves, we can have conversations about this. But in the end, we have to deal with, do we trust God or do we trust ourselves? So the first difficult teaching, God's holy wars, we're not going to be able to spend enough time on this to really work it through, okay? Show grace. Don't get upset. In the Old Testament, especially in the conquering of the promised land, God commands his people to wage holy wars against entire nations. To totally destroy a people group. And this total destruction of groups of his own created image bearers can drive some to reject God Altogether, for who can follow and love a God who would condone and command such a horrible act of killing innocent people? Maybe an entire fighting army. Ah, okay, we can live with that, right? Because it's a battle, it's war, it's not good, but we can live with that. But women and children? Seriously? What did they ever do to God? What did they ever do to deserve this kind of death? They aren't their king if their king was disobedient. Okay, so to answer this, let's, let's wrestle with just the, the Amalekites. Let's keep our focus on them. And I think because that's where our passage lies, it might help us to at least begin to wrestle with this stuff, uh, this, this difficult teaching in our own lives and our own hearts. What did the Amalekites do to justify such destruction? We're actually told in 1 Samuel 15, 2, where God says, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. So when the Israelites began making their way out of Egypt during the Exodus into the promised land, the Amalekites fought against them. They worked to prevent them from going into the promised land. This is the famous battle where um, uh, Moses' hands had to be lifted up, and when they were up, Israel was, win- Israel was winning, and when they were down, they were losing. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, God tells the Israelites, don't forget about Amalek. 
Don't forget what they did to you that day. Because one day, and this is all the Mark version of this, this is one day the Lord is going to blot them out of history. In fact, the words that he used, I will blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Yeah, that's pretty severe. The Amalekites' resistance to Israel was actually resistance to God himself. And the commentator Richard Phillips rightly points out that there are two purposes in an all-out holy war against other nations. The preservation of Israel and the execution of God's judgment on wicked nations that have fallen under his wrath. God is a holy God, and his fierce anger burns against all uncleansed evil. God is holy, and his judgments are always right. We like to think of the Amalekites as innocent, but in reality, they were far from it. In the eyes of God, they were wicked and they were disobedient. They were sinful, they were rebellious, and they were, they were justly, rightly put under his just wrath. And in the end, it was actually God's grace who prevented their immediate destruction. We don't like to think about that. Let's bring it home. You woke up this morning and you breathed a breath of air, meaning you're alive. You did not deserve that breath in the eyes of God as far as sinfulness and righteousness is concerned. The fact that I am breathing right now and am alive is by the grace and the power of God in my life. And even people who hate God, the fact that they're breathing, it is an act of grace that God does not destroy them for their wickedness and their disobedience. That's hard. That's a hard concept for us to wrap around. Maybe it's hard just because we don't like it. The Amalekites were not innocent. They were wicked. Well, what about the children? They were wicked. But what about the Israelites? <laughs> Say, well, they're not good. It's just, that's what my kids do. Like, why did you do that? Well, he did it first. What are you going to do with him? Okay, so what about the Israelites? Let's wrestle with that. They certainly are far from perfect. They're certainly far from obedience. So what is the difference between the Israelites and the Amalekites? Well, God made it possible for Israelites, for the Israelites to be cleaned, to be cleansed. He didn't give that option to the Amalekites. And again, you're like, what? Seriously, what kind of God is that? Why would God do such a thing? He would give the Israelites a chance to be cleansed when they sinned, but he would just utterly destroy the Amalekites and not give them that chance. Why would God do that? Well, to use the words of Paul in Romans 9, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? This is one that I don't like, okay? Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath? Think the Amalekites. Made no uh, patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, that's the Israelites, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. 
And then you go to the book of Revelation. It talks about how a day is going to come when all who are wicked, all who oppose the truth of God, will be judged by the righteous wrath of God through Jesus Christ, His Son. And even those living today, should Christ tarry and not come soon, will one day die and stand in the presence of King Jesus. Those who believed while on earth will live eternally in heaven in His presence while those who rejected God while on this earth will eternally die in heaven away from His presence. Why do churches avoid talking about this? I don't think I need to answer that question. It's hard. I, we don't like it. What kind of God is this? We have a holy God. We have a holy God who demands obedience and perfection from His people. The second difficult, we're going to bring them all together, the second difficult teaching is that God regrets, or as the King James Version reads, God repents of making Saul king. Now, how do we wrap our heads around this statement, especially when Samuel himself says later, I don't know if you catch that, God says, I, I regret making Saul king. And then in chapter or uh, verse 29, Samuel says, for God does not regret. Like, okay, well, how do we, how do we understand? This, this seems like a contradiction, but the Bible doesn't contradict itself. So how do we, how can God regret but not regret? Well, it's important to keep in mind Samuel's words in the exact same verse. If we stop right there when it says God, is, God does not regret, and we leave it there, we say, well, look, a contradiction. Well, this is what he says. He, God, is not a man that he should have regret. And so clearly, God's regretting is not the same as our regretting. I have a lot of regrets in life. When I look back to when I was a youth and I go, oh, thank goodness there was no social media back then. Right? We, we all have those. Or just even the small regrets of life. Why do I regret them? I didn't think it all the way through. I didn't know what was going to happen or how someone was going to react to it. A situation or words or, or actions or whatever. I didn't know. Or I knew and I didn't care. That's, that's why we have regrets. But God doesn't regret in that way. Now, I know this may seem counterintuitive, but I want to give a human example of this divine truth of regret. And this is from theologian Wayne Grudem. And I'm hoping that it helps us to understand a little bit better who God is and what this means. God's regretting is like a human father who allows his child to embark on a course he knows will bring much sorrow. Can every parent say amen? Both to the parent and to the child. So both parent and child have sorrow over what is going to happen. But this father, this human father, allows it nonetheless because he knows that greater long-term good is going to come from it. Why do I allow my children to spend money on things that are going to break in two minutes? Because they need to learn about finances and quality. 
and I know there's going to be a lot of pain, then I'm going to have to sit down and have a long conversation with them about why this broke. The Bible uses the word regret in Genesis chapter 6, verse 6. And the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. This is right before the flood of Noah. God was sorrowful of the results that came after man's creation or Saul's anointing as king. Because when God creates humanity, what does he say? It's not good, it's very good. But what he regrets is what comes next, what happens afterwards. God was sorrowful of the results that came after man's creation. He was sorrowful of the results that came after Saul's being anointed king. And this doesn't mean that God had no clue that sin would enter the world or that Saul would disobey as if like, Samuel, this is as much of a shock to, to me as it is to you. Like, I had no idea. Well, that's not our God. That's not how the Bible describes God. So this sorrow or this regret has to be different from that because God knows all things and evil, even the sinful actions of his people and the world are all part of his plan of salvation. Think of Jesus dying on the cross. This is extremely sinful, but he allowed it to happen. He caused it to happen. And because of that, his people are saved. We'll get there in a second. But like the father who sorrows much over his child's poor decisions, God sorrows, regrets, repents over the disobedience and the sinful actions of his creation. God regrets, and God's regret in making Saul king was not because he didn't know what Saul would do, but it was a regret that Saul's disobedience would cause Saul, his family, and the people of Israel much pain and much suffering. But in the end, long-term good is going to come out of it because of Saul's disobedience leads to David's anointing. And that's what we're going to look at next week. The third difficult, and you're going, holy cow. We're almost done, right? The third difficult teaching is that to obey is better than sacrifice. And you go, well, well, that seems pretty simple. Okay, how's that working out for you? It's not as easy. It's the easiest and most difficult thing to do. Obedience is better than sacrifice. If Saul was keeping the best of the Amalekite flock as a sacrifice, God was not impressed by that. Verse 23 really brings out God's demands of obedience into focus. To deliberately rebel against the clear word and command of God is to reject and, be- and not believe in the true God himself. He says, what you've done, Saul, is no better than divination. That means going to false idols and spirits to try to figure out what the future holds. That's called paganism and unbelief. You are no better than all the other nations around. Oh, shocker that the people wanted a king to be just like all the other nations and they got a king like all the other nations around them. Paul says basically, I know better than God. I understand things better than God. God wants me to utterly destroy the Malachites, but what he really wants is for me to sacrifice all the best animals to him, but only after I get caught. That's what he really wants. 
as if God is too humble or afraid to tell, tell us what He really wants. God is not Minnesota nice. Can I just say that out loud? I'm from South Dakota, so I can say that. He's not Minnesota nice. When God says, I want this, He's not meaning like half of it. Obedience is better than sacrifice. When God commands, He demands obedience, and no excuse to the contrary is good enough. There was nothing wrong with the sheep. There was nothing wrong with the oxen. In fact, it was the best of the best that Saul brought back to camp. They were... If it was done in obedience, it would have been beautiful. And God would have loved it. The sheep and the oxen aren't the issue. It was Saul's heart which was the problem. In his heart, he feared the people more than he feared God. His worldly accomplishments and how he looked at those around him was more important. How he looked to those around him was more important than what he accomplished for the Lord and how he looked to God. That's where we could see this starting to come into focus, right? We, we know people, or perhaps we know people, or perhaps we're one of those people. We put on a good veneer, we put on Saul, but on the inside, it's like, eh. I've had conversations with people who have said, yeah, you know, I mean, I love God. Yeah, I, 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 love, I love that he saved me. Well, what's the big deal? I can get drunk every once in a while. Literally, somebody said that to me, and I'm sitting there going, okay, now, that's like a direct contradiction to a command of God, do not get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. I mean, there's a lot of implications with that command in itself, and it's really deep, and I love it, but for you or me to say, well, I love Jesus, but this one's okay. That's a problem. It's a heart issue. God's people, as God's people, we have a constant battle in our own hearts. We have a constant battle on a daily basis between the flesh, our worldly desires, and the Spirit the desires of God. If God demands a heart of perfect obedience, let's just be honest. What's the answer? I, I can't do it. You can't do it. If God demands a heart of perfect obedience, then none of us meet the criteria. Heck, David didn't even meet the criteria. And so, the Father sent His Son to do what we never could do. He did what we couldn't do. God himself came to earth. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 4 through 7. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, this is what he said. Now, let's see if you, if you recognize these words. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. See, the father prepared not a sheep. He didn't prepare a, an ox. He prepared a body, an individual, the body of his own son to be the full sacrifice for sins. Money, burnt offerings, sin offerings, all those things that are given in order to pardon, 
So like Jonathan was pardoned by the people somehow, some way through those things. All of those things are insufficient to forgive all of our sins. But in Christ, in his willingness to obey and to sacrifice himself because that's what God desired, talk about sacrificing the innocent. There's only one person in all of history that could ever claim innocence. And he's the one who died on the cross for our sins. In Christ, in his obedience, in his sacrifice of himself, eternal life is given to all who believe and submit to him. This is Christ's own words, John chapter 17, verses 1 through 4. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him the authority over all flesh and to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God. And how do they know the only true God? He says, And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, so when we know Christ and we believe in Christ, we know God and we know God, and then he ends this in chapter verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. How opposite from Saul is that? How opposite from you and I is that? And we we could dwell on our sin, we could dwell on our regrets, but in the end... We can't go into the past. We can't change things. And what God says is, yeah, I know. I I know. But if you believe in my son, if you trust in him, he will change your heart. And he is the sacrifice that is sufficient enough to cover all your regrets and all your sins, no matter what the people think of you, no matter what the world, no matter what you accomplish in this world, guess what? What's the famous words? We're still going to die. We can't take it with us. How much sacrifice do we bring to the Lord? How much time and money getting out of bed even in this morning to get to the service so we can worship together? How much sacrifice do we make to serve God, thinking that now we're good before God? I've done what God wants me to do. I've read my Bible this morning. I've gone to church. I've loved my neighbor. Heck, I've even baked cookies and sent it over there. I did this, and I did that, and I did this. And Oh, God's going to be so happy with me when what he really desires is, is obedience, an obedient and repentant heart that desires to please God more than ourselves, more than those around us, that we serve others not because we want to be good in the eyes of God, but because He has already made us good in His eyes. And He says, now go. I have changed your heart. Now go and serve and do it quietly and don't even think about any accomplishments. Don't think about how you look in front of other people. Don't fear them. Fear me, the one who could take your soul. Fear me, the one who created you. And bask, bask in my son, in his obedience, in the salvation, the eternal life that he gives to those who believe. A heart that only comes from faith and a heart that comes from belief in Jesus Christ is what God desires from us. It's Christmas. Give gifts. 
And you know what? Find joy in those gifts that are terrible. (laughs) And we say, it's the thought that counts. And in some way, yeah, it is. But those gifts, we don't give gifts just so that I can have a new toy. And I say that for myself. We give gifts to remind ourselves of the gift. Because without that gift, we're not innocent. And we're under the judgment of God. We are Saul. We are the Amalekites. But because of his son and our belief in him, we are Israel. We are David. Strangely enough, we are a son of God, which is way better than Israel. Where are our hearts? Where do they lie? Do I see and understand that obedience is better than sacrifice? And I'm, am I willing to submit under that for God's glory just as Christ did. Father, I pray that you would expose our hearts, Father. Expose those areas, those things in our life, maybe for the first time to understand that I have been working and working and working trying to please you and I'm hoping you're going to be happy with me when what you not want is submission to your Son and love and faith in Jesus Christ and belief in Him and we will be saved and you will empower us to obey you. Give us a, a heart of repentance, true repentance, not Saul repentance. And I pray, Father, that you would, you would open the eyes and the hearts of people who do not believe that they would believe. They would experience your grace. They would experience your love and they would experience salvation and eternal life, even here on earth, Father. And for those of us, Father, who are your children, remind us, God, this is not a it's not a depressing, depressing message, Father. This is a message of you are beyond understanding. Your character revealed to us, God, is, is so awesome and so wonderful that it is beyond our comprehension. You are a God that is big. You are not small. And yet, Father, you continue to reveal yourself to us. Why us? Why us? I don't, I don't understand. And yet, you do. And we praise you, we glorify you for that. Help us this Christmas season, every day of our life, Father, as your people, to fear you, to love you, to obey you as you command us, but not to earn salvation, but because you have already given us salvation through your Son. Father, in those moments when we struggle to believe, give us belief. Give us faith. And may we glorify you and may you in the long run, even through our sin and our disobedience, be seen as the God that you are, a God of power and might and grace and joy and holiness. We ask this in your name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our final song?